on this episode of the Resound Project podcast. The German church struggle in the 1930s represented a conflict between the members and leaders of the German Lutheran Church who wanted to find some way to be good German Christians and good followers of the Third Reich and to kind of maintain the status quo, if you will, in in this new and increasingly horrific regime. And those Christians was a a minority, a, a dissident few, such as Bonhoeffer and Barth and Goldwitzer and many others that you would know, who understood the rise of Hitlerism as an assault on many of the basic non-negotiable convictions of Christian historic orthodoxy. We're living in a time of deep cultural change, and we often don't know how to address the complex challenges we face. But the church has something positive to offer in the midst of the struggle. Now's the time for the church to help chart a new path forward. I'm Jason Harris, and this is the Resound Project podcast. Join me as we explore the complicated relationship between Christianity and culture, with thoughtful leaders including scholars and practitioners, professors and pastors. Together, we strive to make sense of some of the most challenging issues of our day and offer ideas for how to navigate the confusing times in which we live. What can we learn from Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Curiously and somewhat surprisingly, a number of people on both ends of the political spectrum have recently likened the situation in America today to Germany in the 1930s. Some people, for example, think Donald Trump and the right represent a new kind of fascism. They have compared Trump to Adolf Hitler because of his populist rhetoric, his authoritarian leadership style, and his dismissive attitude towards certain ethnic groups. These people worry that Christians today, like the German Christians of the past, are being duped by political leaders and swept away from Christian principles by nationalistic fervor. These Christians have forgotten that their primary citizenship lies within the kingdom of God, not the United States, and they fail to see that the promise of a new heavens and a new earth, not merely a renewed America, should form their deepest longing and highest aspiration. Others, by contrast, think big tech and the left represent a new kind of totalitarianism, or at least a soft form of it. Our major cultural institutions, including the government, technology, the media, and the educational system, are advancing ideologies that are fundamentally opposed to God and a biblical understanding of the world and of the human person. Increasingly, advocates within these institutions use the power at their disposal to bully their opponents and silence their critics. Or, perhaps worse, many people voluntarily choose to silence themselves because they are intimidated and afraid of being canceled. The people in this category worry that Christians today, like the German Christians of the past, have lost their backbone. They need to stand up and speak the truth. Christians have a responsibility to put their faith into action, regardless of the potential consequences. What's interesting is that people on both sides of the debate appeal to the example of the German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who resisted Hitler and the Nazis and paid for it with his life. So how should we interpret Bonhoeffer's legacy and apply it to our own moment? I wanted to find out, so I reached out to Charles Marsh, who is one of the foremost experts on Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the author of a riveting biography, which I highly recommend, 
entitled Strange Glory, A Life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Charles Marsh is the Commonwealth Professor of Religious Studies and the Director of the Project on Lived Theology at the University of Virginia. Professor Marsh argues that it would be irresponsible to draw too tight of a connection between Germany in the 1930s and our own time. We have to remember that we're living in a very different world. And yet, there are a number of important lessons that can be learned from the past and from Bonhoeffer's heroic resistance to evil in particular. Here's the conversation. I believe we live in very confusing times and people are left scratching their heads trying to figure out what's up and what's down and what does it mean for Christians in particular to live faithfully during this particular moment. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak with you and learn from you. So perhaps you could briefly introduce yourself by way of beginning mm -hmm. and tell us a little bit about your areas of expertise. Yes, I was born in the Deep South. I was the, uh, and am the son of, of a Baptist minister in a family of ministers and journalists. I came of age in a small Mississippi town during the sort of most cataclysmic years of the civil rights movement in a, a, a Bible-based Southern Baptist church. And in fact, was one of the first, was in the first integrated class, a student in the first integrated class, fully integrated school system in the state of Mississippi in 1970. I say that because those memories and those sort of haunting questions uh, have shaped really everything I've done as a, as a Christian, uh, as, a, as a thinker, as a, as, a, as a citizen, as a teacher, as a theologian. I've always loved words and language. My father is a wonderful preacher in the kind of the old Baptist tradition of uh, elocution and, 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 and kind of a floral range. I studied English and philosophy in college and did my PhD in philosophical theology, wrote my doctoral dissertation on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's early philosophical theology and how he developed a Christological kind of critique of the modern conception of the self, the sort of self-mastery, and have over the years found myself working and teaching and organizing kind of at the intersection of theology and lived faith and sort of community building under what we might call lived theology. I am, am fortunate enough to, be, to have been the director of the project on lived theology here at the University of Virginia, which the Lilly Endowment has very generously supported now some two decades. So that's sort of a, a summation of hmm. where I am and what I'm about. That's very helpful. So as a way of getting going, I, I'd be curious to know, as someone who has dedicated his career to writing and researching lived theology, as you say, what concerns do you have right now as you consider the state of the broader church in America? How do you think faithful Christians should respond to the issues with which we must contend? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that question, Jason. I mean, I'm I'm here struggling to figure things out with no really better answers than other fellow travelers such as yourself. I do think often of Dietrich Bonhoeffer 
who is one of my uh, heroes and mentors. I think about the the church struggle in, in Germany, not by way of comparing the German history, the his, German historical situation with our own. I mean, that would be irresponsible on, on many levels, but really for the theological lessons they offer. For example, just this morning, I was reading an essay by one of Bonhoeffer's influences, greatest influences, Karl Barth. It was an early essay in which Barth had just left sort of a political movement and his affiliation with the political movement in Switzerland to begin talking about the meaning of God's movement, of God's original revolution. And there's this beautiful passage in which he says, we, we, as Christians engaged in the social order and called to proclaim forgiveness and repentance to the nations, we dare not forget that, that our hopes and our crusades and campaigns for justice have to be always grounded in God's original revolution. And he is speaking in the profound sense of the triune God, of the God who is first and eternally perfect trinity and perfect movement in this reciprocal, ever-giving mutuality of the triune fellowship. And also in that fashion, we dare never forget that the Christ we worship is a Christ who comes to us from a faraway country, the faraway country of the triune God, not a Christ who rises up within our own customs and traditions and prejudices, but the God who really does come to us as savior and stranger. And this must check, it must chasten all of our finite loyalties, our loyalties to party and, and, and tribe and all, all of the traditions and habits that arise around our background and cultures and regions. Our Christian vocation is not about baptizing the kind of rhetoric of civil religion in the shallow waters of a, a kind of national or regional piety, but you know, it's, it's about remembering that the Christ that we worship is a Christ who comes to us from the faraway country of the triune God, a Christ who we cannot manage and colonize, if you will. And I think the recollection of that difference between the creature and creator, between the finite and the infinite, between our regional, tribal, national, racial, economic loyalties and our primary habitation in the, this new humanity is something that I think could offer all of us in this country a, a way to begin again, a, a way to kind of think again of what it means to say yes to the call of Jesus Christ to join him in a new citizenship. So that's kind of my first thought here that I would love to hear your response to as well. Well, I, I recently read your biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which 
in part sparked the desire to reach out to you for this interview because I was struck by the way in which you described the political captivity of the German church in the 1930s. And on the one hand, I think people are much too quick to suggest that Trump and the right, for example, represent a new kind of fascism or that big tech and the left represent a new kind of totalitarianism. Yet I do think that there are important parallels. So as you said at an earlier point, we shouldn't draw too direct of a connection between our time and Germany in the 1930s. That would be irresponsible. And yet there are theological principles that we could draw out. So first, I was wondering if you could simply provide a a brief sketch of the German church struggle for those who may even be unfamiliar with that very term. What, What did the German church struggle represent in the 1930s? The German church struggle in the 1930s represented a conflict between the members and leaders of the German Lutheran church who wanted to find some way to be good German Christians and good followers of the Third Reich and to kind of maintain the status quo, if you will, in in this new and increasingly horrific regime. And those Christians was a a minority, a, a dissident few, such as Bonhoeffer and Barth and Goldwitzer and many others that you would know, who understood the rise of Hitlerism as an assault on many of the basic non-negotiable convictions of Christian historic orthodoxy. One is this principle of the Lordship of Christ. Another, let's get to this quickly, is that Christianity cannot be separated from Judaism, that Jesus was Jewish, that our faith is grounded within the election of Israel. And this attempt by the German Christians, that's the description of those Germans who remained in the church wanting to develop some kind of a compromise or accommodation with Hitler. They they were quick to want to promote a disinheritance theory, the idea that in the election of Jesus, choosing of Jesus, that God disinherited Israel of, of their of their historic and election. The other the other sort of non-negotiables, you know, have to do with the centrality and preeminence of Jesus Christ. That, as Karl Barth once put it in a late essay, kind of thinking about the mistakes, the theological mistakes that were made in those years. He put it in this way, that Germans began to speak of Christianity and to speak of, uh, by speaking of the nation in a loud voice. And this forgetfulness of the ontological and and non-negotiable distinction between the sovereign God and creation and creatureliness, the forgetfulness that our Our salvation arises out of the unconditional gift of the gospel that is not our product. It's not the product of our own ingenuity or of our own pleasing customs and traditions, but it comes to us from the new world of God. 
And so there, there's, a, there's the sense of Christianity's essential connection to Judaism, the principle of the lordship of Christ over all creation, the, the, the principle that coming to Christ in salvation puts us in a new citizenship, a new humanity that has priority over our finite regional tribal loyalties. These are some of the lessons that I think we would do well to learn from the German situation. And these don't require drawing any of those pernicious comparisons between Hitler and Trump that you hear invoked occasionally in the public square. Right. So in that Bonhoeffer biography, you talk about how many of the German Christians claimed that God had chosen a new Israel, which was the the German Volk and the Christian doctrine of revelation had brought about this disinheritance of the Jews that you spoke of because they wanted a a strong church of muscular virtues, a manly church unified by German ideals. And what was fascinating to me is that uh, you wrote that two days after Hitler was named the new Reich Chancellor, he made a public address on the radio where he explained how German Protestants had desperately recast the Christian narrative of guilt and salvation as the story of Germany's defeat and rebirth. So there's this recasting of that gospel message that comes to us from God in terms of Germany's story of defeat and rebirth with World War I and the shame of Versailles, followed by the rebirth of the fatherland. It, it's striking to me that Bonhoeffer could have been so prescient uh, in that moment and offer a critique of the the German Christians and and a call to to faithfulness. So if we were to look at this situation even more closely, what do you think is important for us to see in terms of the parallels between their time and our own? I know much of what uh, spurred the desire for a Hitler-like figure in 1930s Germany was the repercussions of of World War One and the consequences of living under the the Treaty of Versailles that demanded such harsh reparations from from Germany and what kind of a mindset did that create within the people uh, that that made them long for a Hitler like figure? That's a really helpful observation and um, terrific question because. Early in the Hitler regime, you began to hear theologians uh, in these distinguished universities describe the, the, the historical moment as a completion of the work of Martin Luther. There was this sense that revival was in the air, that a nation that had suffered and been persecuted under the weight of the guilt of Versailles that was also languishing economically, was now through this kind of messianic figure reborn. The churches were buzzing again, membership was up. I mean, there were were real signs that this was connecting to the laity. And yet Bonhoeffer was uncommonly prepared and equipped to discern in this nationalistic fervor, the signs of, of, a, of a kind of idolatrous impulse that really at the heart of, of this 
revival spirit was much more than a, a kind of uh, much more than a, a, an awakening to the new world of the gospel. It, it was a kind of retrieval of old pagan nationalistic ideals. It was a kind of reawakening of an ideal of Germanness, of peoplehood, of of race, and, and and it wasn't a kind of awakening of you know Galatians three twenty six through twenty nine or Second Corinthians five of the, of the God who in Christ breaks down the, the walls of division. So there there was this there was this fundamental era uh, that he, he very clearly observed, and I would like to say that. Part of his his capacity to see clearly was based on this indefatigable kind of commitment to the Jesus who comes to save humanity from the faraway country of the triune God as a gift who, as Bonhoeffer would say in the opening pages of his remarkable book, Cost of Discipleship, ask of the individual one thing to say yes and to make a first step into a new world and in that first step this is what it means to be a christian it means to make this step towards the savior calling us to salvation recognizing that nothing will be the same that this call compels me to understand anew what it means to be a human person in relation to others. The other thing that I found so fascinating in that uh, initial address from 1933 is that Bonhoeffer was able to put his finger on something which is so critically important for us, the, the ways in which political leaders can use religious language but they mean something quite different by it. And that's why they can uh, exert this powerful control over people. So you, you wrote that Bonhoeffer said that Hitler's rhetoric was religious. He dissolved po politics in a religious aura and all the theological terms which had been previously secularized had now become the great standards of his appeal. Hitler promised deliverance and redemption, rebirth and salvation and in so doing, denounced the Reich's enemies as godless and satanic. He did all that in the name of Providence, for he believed that Providence had chosen him to deliver the German people. And I think that the idols of both the left and the right are what we in our own day need to guard against. And in order to remain true to Jesus, to say yes to that call to discipleship, we need to be on guard against these various forms of idolatry. So I wonder what advice you might give to Christians today to avoid the, the political captivity of either the left or the right. How do we uh, remain faithful to Jesus as Lord, despite all the uh, varying powers that compete for our allegiance? We need to be grounded in the word. You know, we need to read scripture against ourselves and for the sake of the excluded and distressed, we need to remember the peculiar people. And we need to turn off outlets of political propaganda, whether they're on the right and the left. I 
as an evangelical child heard a lot in my subculture about taking on the mind of Christ, about the importance of filling our thoughts with the excellences of Christ, with the virtues of Scripture. And I, I feel like somehow that severe demand needs to be taught anew. You know, I, I think that, um, that a lot of these questions about honesty and truth-telling and kind of political loyalties that, that divide us are a result of, 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 a, of our being distracted as Christians from the primary call to take on a new citizenship, to learn what it means first and foremost to live into this new humanity, indeed into the global ecumenical body of Christ. And, and that sense of our global and, if you will, our cosmopolitan citizenship as Christians, I think is also part of the part of the preaching and teaching that in my hope has promise to to renew and to and and to reinvigorate our our witness as long as we don't push the connections too far Christians should pay close attention to the troubling parallels between our time and Germany in the 1930s. But if we are wise, we will see that the historical lessons cut both ways. As Charles Marsh has shown, many Germans felt that the nation had lost some of its former glory as a result of Germany's defeat in the First World War, and they resented the punishing reparations placed on Germany at the end of the war through the Treaty of Versailles, which crippled the German economy and, interestingly, led to skyrocketing inflation. They felt like they were losing their heritage. So without being too cheeky about it, let's face it, you could say that many people resonated with the call to make Germany great again. And that's precisely what made them susceptible to thinly veiled religious appeals that recast the gospel of sin and salvation into a story about the defeat and rebirth of the German nation. We have to stop and ask, is nostalgia for a supposed golden age in the past enabling some people to take advantage of American Christians with political propaganda. There's certainly a good and rightful place for patriotism and love of country within the Christian faith, but we must remember that God's mission is not to transform Germany or America or any other nation into the new promised land. Despite what the early Puritans might have thought, when Jesus called us to be a city on a hill, he wasn't talking about America. He was talking about his global church, which includes people across the ages from every nation. Christians are right to look to the heroic example of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who stood up to the forces of darkness in his time. But we need to remember that Bonhoeffer wasn't fighting first and foremost to save the country. He was fighting to save the church. Bonhoeffer might have had concerns about the future of liberal democracy, but he spoke up because he felt the church was being compromised by weak Christians who were willing to embrace a politicized version of the gospel of Jesus rather than the real thing. But the knife does cut both ways. On the flip side, we need to recognize that, number one, 
There are people today who are seeking to neutralize the Christian voice on matters of conscience that fall outside the accepted societal standards. No one has a problem with a Christian who argues for racial equality or social justice. But the backlash is often quick and fierce. If a Christian advocates for a biblical view of marriage, gender, or sexuality, or who defends the intrinsic worth of both an unborn child and a mother facing an unplanned pregnancy. Number two, there are intolerant voices who wield disproportionate degrees of power within our cultural institutions, such as business, technology, and the media, as well as the government and the academy. They're willing to exercise their influence and power to impose their ideological agenda on others. And number three, there are people who do not want others to think differently. They're not interested in the free exchange of ideas. They leave no room for honest debate and skip straight to shaming, intimidating, and canceling. No matter how polite one may be, a person can be censored, fired, or boycotted for not saying or thinking what one is supposed to. Cancel culture is a real problem, though we must keep things in perspective. There's a big difference between being silenced with a gun by the state and being deplatformed or kicked off of social media. Nevertheless, pastors and Christian leaders must be willing to take a stand like Bonhoeffer and speak the truth, no matter what the cost. Bonhoeffer was right. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. But so is demonizing your opponents. As Professor Marsh reminds us, Jesus calls us to put on the mind of Christ and to cultivate the virtues of Christ. As Christians, we must not give in to fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We must not conflate dreams for our country with dreams for the kingdom of God. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We must not play the victim. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And we must not resort to violence. Put away the sword. Those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. And we must not vilify our opponents. You shall love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus said, all people will know his followers, not by their hate, but by their love. Even as we resist evil, we're called to love our enemies. The purpose of Resound is to strengthen the church for a changing world so that the gospel of Jesus might resound to the next generation. Learn more about our approach and programs at resoundproject.org. If you like what you hear and would like to help others find this content, please subscribe, leave a review, or share the podcast with a friend.